Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So two beloved movies celebrated their 10th birthdays this week, The Matrix and 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, We had a quick Patreon poll and you guys selected 10 things as our topic for this episode. An excellent crossover point between my personal love of classic teen movies and Morgan's Shakespeare expertise, which we will go into in a minute. So starring Julia Stiles, Heath Ledger and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, 10 Things is a high school rom-com inspired by Taming of the Shrew and it features a romance between a standoffish feminist teenager named Kat Stratford and the school bad boy Patrick Verona. Raised by an overprotective father, Kat's popular sister Bianca is forbidden from dating until Kat finds a boyfriend as well. So in the hopes of getting Bianca to go out with him, another boy hires Patrick to break through Kat's shell. Yes, so... Why don't we start off with my my little Shakespeare background lesson slash anecdote. Yes, let's all learn about The Taming of the Shrew. Yes, so it is actually, I would say, not even accurate to say that this is inspired by The Taming of the Shrew. It is a retelling of the play. Like, it's quite closely based on the play. But less depressing. Yes, it's definitely the best adaptation, filmed adaptation, There was a Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor adaptation back in the day that I have also seen. And also an episode of Moonlighting, which I actually remember being quite good, but I haven't seen it since I was 14. And Moonlighting is not streaming anywhere, quite famously, so I can't tell you whether it holds up. I have seen all of these because we read this play when I was 14 years old and a freshman in high school, which is insane. That is a (laughs) crazy thing to make 14-year-olds read because it is fucked up what happened to romeo and juliet my goodness well what happened to romeo and juliet is that all of the other ninth graders read romeo and juliet and my ninth grade english teacher was weird and decided that we were going to read all of the alternative options for all of the books in the ninth grade so instead of reading like the catcher in the rye and a separate piece which was like the standard text then. They've kind of diversified the syllabus in the meantime, but uh, there was another sort of third standard thing that everybody read. We read The Assistant by Renard Malamud, which features a very upsetting rape scene. We read The Metamorphosis by Kafka, which I found really (laughs) creepy at the time. We read, like, just the... I can't describe to you. And so instead of Romeo and Juliet, a nice play for children, we read The Taming of the Shrew. So... The setup of The Taming of the Shrew is essentially the same as this. There's like an older sister who no one wants to marry. And then this younger sister who's very kind of pure and nice and everyone does want to marry her. And the father has the rule that the older sister has to marry first. So her name is Katerina and then, or Catherine. And then this wily figure, Petruchio, comes along and convinces her to marry him and she's like well no one else will have me so I guess I'll marry this guy he seems like he likes me and then they get married and he immediately starts acting like a total boor because this is how he's decided he's going to tame her is by acting like a total monster and then she'll eventually like him and this goes on for a while until she eventually decides that she does like him and um, there's a long monologue at the end of the play where she basically explains that um, it's good for women to be subordinate to their husbands because that's how everyone winds up being happy. Yeah, I I saw it on stage starring the actress who most people will know as um, Missy from Doctor Who or Miss Wardwell from Sabrina, who's like this amazing actress. And they staged it very dark. 
<laughs> so like they played it straight for the first half and then the second half you were like this is depressing as fuck and then like it kind of ended with her being like led off on a leash or something and I was just like oh my god this is awful <laughs> well see this play is a comedy like yeah, it's one of yeah. the comedies right and but it ends with this long very long soliloquy I cannot read the whole thing but um literally part of what this she says is Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign, one that cares for thee, and for thy maintenance commits his body to painful labor both by sea and land, etc. And it ends with her literally saying, uh, let's see, our strength is weak, our weakness past compare, that seeming to be most which we indeed least are, then veil your stomachs for it is no foot and place your hands hands beneath your husband's foot in token of which duty, if he please, my hand is ready, may it do him ease. And traditionally, it literally, like, she literally puts her hand between beneath her husband's foot at this point to, like, symbolize that he is so her master. So was this written when William was having some marital issues? Because One most wonders. of his plays are not along these lines. <laughs> well, it's very, it's very early in his career. And the big debate about this play, and I got into it, with my ninth grade English teacher and then had the same experience when I was an undergraduate doing Shakespeare at Oxford is that people have convinced themselves that this is actually a secretly feminist play. No. And they are wrong. I'm sorry. If anyone is listening to this, has this opinion, you are incorrect. It's sexist. And I think that people have basically like, don't want to believe that Shakespeare could have written something this upsetting because we have this conception of him, right? Is this sort of like poet of humanity and whatever. And many of his other female characters, particularly later in his career, are much more kind of deep and interesting and whatever. I think there's, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about the fact that there have been a zillion Macbeths recently. There's another one coming out soon. And I think that's because Lady Macbeth is the best female character in Shakespeare, right? And so that keeps happening but this is not an instance of this and we have to just accept that it sucks and it's bad and so we did this in class again don't have 14 year olds read this it's fucked up i was very very angry i like viscerally enraged and my teacher i guess was didn't want to do any work that week and so had us watch every single adaptation <laughs> that had been made, including this movie. So as a teenager, I was a snob and did not like teen movies because I felt that they were, you know, superficial and below me. And on top of that, I had just read this play and was like, this is the worst thing I've ever read in my entire life. And I'm so angry. And so I watched this and was like, this sucks. Which is really I funny because that's literally, the, I, that's literally what the Julia Stiles character in the film would say about this situation. Correct. <laughs> I was too much like her to be able to engage <laughs> with the film. And I hadn't seen it since and assumed as of like several years ago that I would like it much more seeing it a second time. I, I actually bought the DVD in like a used bookstore for like three bucks or something a couple of years ago. So I was really curious to watch it again because I assumed that I would have a much different reaction to it. And it was really interesting to watch it again because I thought it was obviously much better and I thought it was really fun, but I couldn't totally get out of the mindset of like trying to analyze why I had hated it as a teenager, right? Like there was... 
like I wasn't still in that mindset, but I was kind of still being like, hmm, hmm, what was going on? Which did put a little bit of like a filter in between me and the film, I think. But yeah, that's my background with this film. And that's some context for what's going on. And I do want to talk a little bit more as later about sort of how they adapt it, because I do think it's interesting. And they do the best job they possibly can with it and basically save it. But I do think there are some sort of remnants in there of the play and, and the sort of why this was chosen for this period. I mean, like Clueless was a few years earlier and is obviously an adaptation of Emma. And then Bridget Jones also happens around this time and is less directly, but still an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. So this was clearly like a thing that was happening in, in Hollywood. I mean, the screenwriters who did this movie and also did Legally Blonde and therefore are certified geniuses. Um, They did like another kind of Shakespeare teen movie a few years later, which is Twelfth Night, and that's She's the Man, which I've not seen and looks really corny, but I've been told is actually pretty good. And it's about like a girl disguising herself as a boy to join the soccer team or something like that. But (laughs) um, I really like teen movies. Like when I was in my late teens and started actually getting access to films, I just watched dozens and dozens of classic 80s and 90s teen movies. And this was among them. Like it wasn't my favorite probably because I was really into, I was really into John Hughes movies and I really liked Footloose for some reason. Don't know why. uh, (laughs) My brother and I watched Footloose like five times. (laughs) Um, But, um, but yeah, it's like, it was just such a charming experience and something I kept thinking about when I was rewatching this yesterday was that you could not, retell this story for adults such a genius move to have it be set in a high school and I I read some interviews with the writer and director as well and they were kind of talking about how they decided to like frame it as a film that adults could watch that happened to be set in a high school rather than it being like oh it's a teen movie for kids and I think it does work like through both of those lenses in a really effective way but the fact that it's about teenagers excuses so much behavior because it's one of those films where the whole kind of central conflict is so agonizing that it could so easily just tip into you just being like, these characters are awful. Basically, every single character in it is unbearable in some way, which is like a very good teen trait. Every one of them is like embarrassing or immature or like downright mean. And like, obviously there is a villain, but to actually accept this film, you have to accept that Heath Ledger is basically deceiving Julia Stiles for the entire film. He is being paid to seduce her and is like, falsifying all these interests to like try and seem like he's more into the sort of stuff that she's into like riot girl music and stuff and by the end even though he's done this you're like i accept it partly because heath ledger is just so incredibly charismatic and charming in this film it's unreal but like they managed just like the 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 pacing of it and stuff like you do actually buy that it's okay but it's because they're teenagers you know because like if this was like someone who was 25 you'd just be like this behavior is so unethical and you're just being awful to this poor woman And it's like, well, these teenagers don't know any better and they've learned from their mistakes. And it's about them kind of growing and maturing in a way that just like really works because they are all in some way dirtbags. Yes, we will talk extensively about Heath Ledger later in this episode. But that character doesn't work at all if you don't have an actor who is Heath Ledger. Well, they went through literally like over 200 guys. Like, they just kept auditioning people and never found anyone right. And apparently, basically, as soon as they met Heath Ledger, they were like, okay, this guy is a film star. He was 18, which is bonkers. And they were just like, we're casting you now. (laughs) You're perfect. I 
texted a friend after completing this movie and was like, this this movie was really interesting to watch. It's like a document from another time in so many ways. And then also was like, it should be illegal for 19 year olds to be this hot, which is really how I feel about this film. (laughs) Like, it's just uncomfortable. It's terrible. Like, oh my God. (laughs) He was very attractive from an early age. But he just has this old film star energy. Yeah. And he just has yeah. all of this sort of life force and charm. And I feel like this is also like outweighing Julia Stiles, which it shouldn't be because she is so good in this film at all as well. Like she is so authentic. And there's so many scenes where she like really seems like she's bursting into tears or she's blushing. And like her awkwardness is just so sincere and amazing because like she's been written as this character who's very into 90s feminism. It is like very intentionally sarcastic and off-putting in this way that is so teenagery because it's like, yes, this is your personality, but you're definitely kind of doing this stuff on purpose at the same time. And it's hiding the fact that she's really awkward underneath. And it was just such an interesting sort of multi-layered kind of way of depicting that character that also clearly kind of fed into the fact that Julia Stiles at the time, she wasn't like a classic teen movie star. You know, she wasn't sort of bubbly. And she really was like a bit more like this character in real life, I think, is why she got cast as well. Yes. Um, and then famously like went to Columbia and was really into Sylvia Plath and was like trying to get a bell jar adaptation off the ground for a long time, which never happened. Um, she reads the bell jar in the movie also, which is funny. I see I think the biggest problem with the movie which is not going to be a popular opinion with many of listeners, <laughs> but that's fine. We know that I don't have a problem with that. Um, I think that character is a bit underwritten, actually. And I think she's very good. But I think that they... And this is part of like the issue with trying to adapt this play. But do you really think she's... I mean, I thought like she, she has like more to her than Heath Ledger's character. Yes. But... Uh, well, I think he's better. Which is part of the problem. I think she's very good, but he's do you think, just so... Do you think she's a bit too cartoonish? Yes. Yeah. I Like, I don't think any of this is her fault, and I don't think it's anyone's fault for being, like, not as good as Heath Ledger in something, right? Like, it's, you're not... Good especially you, especially right? when you're 19. <laughs> right. Like, what are you going to do? But I think that she's... Until she sort of starts getting really into him, she basically has one setting, which is, like, so angry that you have a hard time, or at least I have a hard time really figuring out what her deal really is. And I get that she's supposed to be an angry teenager. And I like that she's like an angry teenage girl. And yeah, not, which is very rare. Which is like the point of the movie. And then like in the sort of back half of the movie, you get like several scenes kind of in a row where she sort of like explains herself in a way. And like that's supposed to sort of explain her character motivations and stuff. Um, like there's a scene with her sister where she sort of, almost like lays out her backstory. But I just think it's sort of... So at the beginning of the movie, there's a scene in her English class. There are a few scenes in her English class. And she has this um, English teacher who's this like very cool black guy. He like raps Shakespeare and stuff. Yeah, there's two really good teachers in this because we've got Alice and Janney as like the as the constantly oh writing porn oh. in her laptop teacher, and it was like this she's was the guidance pre counselor, Westwick, pre fame. Like, oh, she's so good. Oh my god, the fact that she's the guidance counselor doing that even better, <laughs> just sublime, hysterical. But so there are like two black characters in this movie. One of whom is Gabrielle Union, and she's playing like a bitch. So and I mean, she's just playing like this... the friend. She's not really in it. Yeah. And then there's this teacher. And he's clearly supposed to be, like, likable and cool, which he is. But 
anytime she sort of tries to talk at all, and at the beginning she has this sort of monologue about like feminist stuff, he makes her leave class. One of the sort of interesting things about this movie is that it's clearly kind of referencing all of this feminist stuff, but it can't really, in terms of like explicitly like feminist text things, right? But it can't really engage with them. And when she's depicted as kind of expressing herself in that way, she's literally like made to go away. Yeah, but also that's a really good scene because it's sort of like she is she's really into feminism but in like a very immature way and the whole point of that scene is he's like talking about like well how oppressed are you as like a white girl in the right. suburbs okay so but but he does that but then literally multiple scenes after that she like raises her hand and, and it's just like i like this thing you're doing and he's like leave class but he's supposed to be cool and i found that sort of like what is happening i found that weird i was just like well this skill's meant to be really underfunded and terrible <laughs> That is, have you, okay, did you see the fucking school? That is not an underfunded school. It's a castle. (laughs) Um, And so this movie comes to the late 90s. It's part of this sort of little trend of movies like Clueless and Legally Blonde and I would say Bridget Jones, which obviously aren't all teen movies, but I think they're all part of this kind of third wave feminism Rom-coms, yeah. Where, rom-coms, yes, where part, I mean, Third wave feminism is famously kind of hard to define. That's one of its defining characteristics is there was a lot going on. But part of what was going on was this sense of it's cool to be very feminine and also like that's feminist too. And then also sort of this like sex positivity thing. Well, it's the Spice Girls, but intellectual. (laughs) Correct. So Clueless is like the no plus ultra of that, right? Like Cher is kind of a dummy but she's not actually stupid and she's into her clothes and you realize as the movie goes on that you should be taking her seriously and that she's actually like really great this movie isn't exactly like that because Kat doesn't dress like that like she often dresses like she doesn't really care about what other people are thinking of her but I think that it fits into that whole sort of set of movies in that it weirdly kind of gestures at this feminist stuff but kind of is insulating itself from it as well. And the fact that it's trying to revise this sort of famously misogynistic play in this sort of insulated high school space seems to me to really fit in with that whole mode that I'm describing. And I think a lot of that is very interesting. But I think that there are just then a lot of tensions with this character that they that don't all kind of get resolved. Because... They talk about all the characters like, oh, she's such a bitch. And frankly, for the first half of the movie, like you understand why everyone hates her. She's a huge bitch. She's mean to everybody. And also so is her sister, though, which is something that I like. I remember when I originally watched as a teenager, I don't remember thinking the sister was mean. Right. I was just like, oh, she's like the nice sister. And she's actually like very unpleasant and selfish, which the movie makes very clear. But I, I think I found quite effective was just the fact that like you can really clearly see how the sisters and how the plot just all stems from the fact that there's this overprotective father who thinks that he's doing his two teenage daughters a favor by like forbidding them to ever go out with boys and like forces one of them to wear like a pregnancy stomach and like obviously he's very funny he's this really over-the-top character who's convinced that his daughters are gonna become pregnant but like you can see it's like the two kind of ways that they've reacted to this is like one of them is sort of a boy crazy popular girl 
And the other one is this really angry feminist. Well, but what's interesting about the movie too is that part of, again, the sort of movement of feminism was this sort of like, we can all have sex all the time if we want and you can't tell me it's not feminist. And then like later on in this period, you'd have like slut walks, right? And like reclaiming of words like that. But because this is Hollywood, you can't do that. And so you have this figure in the dad who's like, comically ridiculously overprotective in a way that you're clearly supposed to think is like stupid but then the movie also is clearly sort of saying like but you guys probably don't actually want to have sex like no nah, maybe don't do that yeah they never they definitely don't depict them as having sexual urges it's, right. it's very sort of like oh there's this romance which is following very old-fashioned kind of it could be like a story from the 1940s romance between her and patrick verona And she gets really drunk at one point and then does this like sexy dance on a table. And it's like, oh God, I can't believe that she did that. It was so embarrassing. And I mean, spoiler alert, fast forward 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this, but um, she sort of tells her sister later that like the reason she hates this mean guy is that like she dated him once and they had sex and like she decided she didn't want to and that he was mean to her. And like, that's completely obviously a valid thing and like not a bad message to be sending to teenagers. But I think it's kind of interesting that the movie has this sort of stuff spread through it while also... But it's also, I mean, for like a teenager watching that, the idea that her kind of, her two sort of foundational romantic relationships as a teenager are sort of about the ways that boys react to her saying no and consent and stuff. Because Heath Ledger's character is obviously not wanting to kiss her while she's drunk, whereas the Joy character is just, like, completely horrified when she doesn't want to keep having sex. Well, right. And, like, I again, I'm not saying that this is, like, a bad thing to have in a movie, but it's really... it's. I just found it really interesting that they were sort of playing with these ideas, but then it all sort of winds up coming back to the same place, if that makes any sense. And that you have this character in Patrick who's like clearly treating her horribly in many ways, but is also sort of the model for like good behavior. I just think like, I'm not saying that any of this is necessarily good or bad. I think you could write an amazing like college dissertation on this movie, like picking apart all of the little things that they're doing and like tying them back to sort of historical things going on at that exact time. What like I texted my friend, like this is a document from another era and it really feels Which is like, like all of the music. Just Oh my god. <laughs> every piece of music. And the clothes. Oh my god, the clothes. Well like Riot Girl was considered part of like the very sort of early stages of like third wave fem- wave feminism and they literally have like Riot Girl bands in the movie, but then also have like bare naked ladies and like Sister Hazel on the soundtrack, and I was like, "Oh, it's all coming back to me now." Car Th- this ride. was a Disney movie, by the way, which may explain the, yes. <laughs> the lack of intensely right? political content. But um, yeah, no, I remember like in one of the interviews, I'll, I'll link in the show notes because there's some kind of retrospective sort of oral history interviews with the writers and director and stuff, but. The writer said that this was a Disney movie and at the time they were like, we want to do a teen movie in 1999. And it was a toss up between this and a film that just had a title like High School Sluts or something. (laughs) So So there you go. Well, I think it's interesting to compare this film. With Easy A. Like, I mean, Easy A 10 years Mm -hmm. later. Yeah. 
I don't think that there's nothing political going on here, obviously. Like, A, there's political stuff in every piece of art, but, like, clearly they're they're making some points. And I would imagine that lots of 14-year-old girls found out about the feminine mystique after watching this film. Yes. But, like, if you compare this to Legally Blonde, oh, for yeah. instance, which is, again, the same screenwriters to, uh, no, four-ish years later, I think I rewatched Legally Blonde recently. I mean, Legally and, Blonde um, is a perfect film. Well, right. So, Legally Blonde, I genuinely, if I were, like, teaching a college class on, like, feminist movies, whatever the fuck that means, that would be near the top of my list of movies to teach. Because everything in it is completely ideologically coherent and making a point about what it's trying to say about, like, women working together. Which makes sense, because this was their first film. Like, this was their debut project together. And then it was like, okay, we've done something really good. Time to make our masterpiece Legally Blonde. (laughs) Yeah. And I would also imagine that they had some more creative freedom at that point. They'd already made a really successful film. And I think it's sort of the difference between, like, a really entertaining movie that does have some ideas in it and is sort of asking you to think about some things versus a movie that is obviously also incredibly entertaining, but is undergirded with like incredibly well thought out political ideas that is just like operating on a completely different yes. level. It's not obviously a bad thing at all to make like a super entertaining, interesting movie, but it's I just think it's sort of useful to sort of compare those two things, right? I mean, it's not a bad thing to be not as good as Legally Blonde which is one of the great American Virtually films. impossible. Like, you know, like. And the screenwriters are coming back for Legally Blonde 3. So oh, they've great. put them back in charge. Because I was like, I was, because these two writers did such amazing work in the kind of this narrow period and then their their later films are less well known and I've not seen them, but it, it just seemed because they've not made a major movie in essentially like maybe a decade, they have made a couple of films in the 2010s, but it's like, this is so obviously just Hollywood sexism where there are so many female writers and directors where they will make something incredible and then just struggle to get a deal for anything else. And I was like, thank God, when I went over to IMDb and saw that they are working on Legally Blonde 3, which is coming out next year, and they've also been signed up to do an all-women Expendables spinoff, which, I mean, the Expendables is, I mean, I've not watched them, but okay, I'll watch it. When they first met before this, one of them wanted to do, like, she'd written an all-female action movie and just couldn't get it made. Which makes sense, because it was the fucking 90s and we're still sexist now, so. Right. Yes. Although, this was the period where all these teen movies were being made, and those were really good vehicles yeah. for, like, yeah. young female stars, for sure. right? Which we don't have anymore. No. So. No, I mean, I, I, I think, like, just the whole teen movie genre... It's sort of like they were replaced by young adult movies, which is completely different. And also those are usually much, much bigger budget. Like they're kind of Hunger Games things. But teen movies, basically there's only been like two or three teen movie teen movies that are actually good since the millennium. You know, there's Mean Girls and Easy A and like one other film. And everything else, it's just the 80s and 90s was the heyday. Yeah, we've we've sort of given up on this and the romantic comedy. And I mean, the romantic comedy, as we know, is sort of... Making a comeback. Making a little comeback. it does sort of reflect the fact that women have not been doing well in Hollywood recently because these were the movies and, you know, the, some of the rom-coms around this period too, that, that actually were written by women, you know, which was uncommon. Bridget Jones was written and directed by a woman. Crazy, 
crazy stuff. <laughs> and Legally Blonde, which isn't exactly a rom-com, but has some of that DNA and is sort of just like its own amazing thing, obviously written by women too, although directed by a man, which is crazy to think about, but that's Hollywood for you. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the cast yes. some more. We sort of started started the discussion and didn't finish. Why don't we start with Joyce Gordon-Levitt, who... <laughs> Playing to type, oh, adorable, oh, and a baby. Oh, gosh. <laughs> he was just a great child star. Yeah. He was... Obviously, he's not a literal child at this point. Yeah. He's a teenager. But um, I have seen a lot of Third Rock from the Sun, and he was just a total delight on that show. And then did this, and it must have been very shortly after this that he went to college and sort of vanished for a while. Probably helped with the not having a breakdown that we know of. But uh, he just had a quality. He, that was he's also so such a pro charming. in this as well, though. Like, he just knows, yes. he's just like precisely the correct role. He's not playing it too much. He's just chill. <laughs> yeah, he plays the like nice boy who has a crush on the younger sister. Although he is a bit and, of a nice guy, capital N, capital G. Oh, and, yeah. his, and his friend yeah, is like yeah. absolutely the 19, 90s equivalent of an incel, for sure. Oh <laughs> my god. So, so funny. The friend is played by Dave Krumholtz and so like funny. wears like suits to school like that type. He looks about 45. <laughs> oh my god. And so just Gwen Levitt's character lays eyes on the younger sister and is immediately like, this is the love of my life. It's right? so funny because like she and her friend are just having this conversation where they're like, you know, I really love my backpack. And it's just like, right. you're idiots. You're all idiots. And I just love that they make it explicit that like, first of all, the popular girl is just like a normal looking teenage girl. <laughs> She's not like the mega babe of like all the, like another thing that I don't like about modern teen movies is like everyone looks really perfect because everyone has to look really perfect in Hollywood and the thing about 80s 90s teen movies is they do at least plausibly look like human teenagers <laughs> which they yes. do in this film even though obviously Heath Ledger is a golden god but like in this story it's like he just he's like wow I'm struck dumb with love for Bianca and it's like Bianca's an idiot she's not very nice she is gonna ignore you for the whole film but okay this seems very very realistic <laughs> I think Bianca's look is just tremendous oh it's so good so 90s <laughs> Oh my god, it really transported me <laughs> to that time. Because everyone else looks very 90s, but like, like Julia Stiles just has like really, really, really long hair, right? Yeah. Is wearing and wears kind cargo of, pants. Right, exactly. And obviously is like extremely beautiful and you're just like, oh yeah, you kind of look like you're from another time. And Heath Ledger is just like, I mean, he's Heath Ledger. Like, he's got kind of long hair. It's Yeah, I mean, he, he's great. not particularly 90s. No, but then you look at this girl. Oh, my God. She has this terrible haircut. <laughs> and has the sort of, like, butterfly clips in and is wearing these clothes. I don't even know what to say. They're just so dated. It is beyond... There's some cardigans. There's some strappy florals. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I have definitely owned some of the things she was wearing or like close iterations thereof. It was just tremendous. It was really great. And like, 
she's obviously like a cute teenager. Like it's not as though this stuff made her look bad, but you just look at it now and you're like, oh my God, like I can't <laughs> believe this was ever fashionable. And also the thought that any boy would just look at her and be like, I'm struck down with love. This is like so hilarious. I mean, it seems real, like teen crushes, you know. Oh my, no, exactly. But this is what I'm saying is that it's not like she is the sort of like hot girl, but that's what's good about the movie is that it's sort of just like, yep. Yes, indeed. Here is the like dummy, and uh, and that is indeed how normal people behave. So I found that whole part very charming. Um, Did you know the guy who plays the mean guy, like the the attractive, handsome body, uh, starts a cult? Is he the guy? He's the guy. <gasps> oh my god! So like it literally, literally every single character absolutely played to type, one hundred percent, perfectly cast. The body literally started a cult, a Hollywood cult. <laughs> oh my god! With the supernatural lady, right? Oh that's no, the one no, you're that's about? that's a worse cult. Oh okay. Because I think you're thinking of the NX whatever, which is like a yeah. sex cult, which are, they're like extremely evil. I think that Andrew Keegan's cult was only middling because he's still working, and people seem to talk about him like he's not just vanished. Whereas everyone who was involved in the NX thingy cult is like, let's just pretend this didn't happen. Yeah, still remarkable though. Yes, starting a cult is is re- is a remarkable. Yes, feat. That's really quite something. Um. We've already sort of talked about Julia Stiles. I do think she's good in this movie. I just think it's a bit broad, the writing that she's got. But her really sincere emotional moments are all so good. Yeah. I feel like she's gotten a bit of a short shrift from Hollywood. Uh, yeah. I wish she had had more stuff. I mean, she's been working really consistently forever, but yes. Yes. And it's also highly frustrating to watch a born film and be like, Julia Stiles is in this film. And she should have more of a role. <laughs> I know. There. It's really, really aggravating. It's like, stop underutilizing Julia. We all love her. We were alive in the 90s. I know. It's it's irritating. But obviously the star of this movie is Heath Ledger. It's Heath. Yeah. Watching this musical number, just the, the point where he sings. And it's like, he's not a good singer. And he's, you know, they just taught him a couple of moves for the dancing. And it's just like, you are a star. The charisma levels are off the charts. I mean, I have seen that sequence in the intervening years since I was 14 more than once. That is the part of this movie that has been shared around the internet that I have watched. He's just, he's just so good. It's crazy. Because like the whole thing where like rom-com male leads have to know how to look at their, you know, partner and he does. (laughs) Yep. He sure, sure does. So this was his breakout role, and then he had a Knight's Tale one or two years after. Yeah, he did 10 things in 99, The Patriot in 2000, and then a Knight's Tale in 2001. Have we done a Knight's Tale episode? We have, right? One of our joint favorite films, a masterpiece. We have not. We've not done a Knight's Tale episode? That's bonkers. Well, we'll get to it eventually. Yeah. (laughs) And... So, he, like, that's such an unbelievable one-two punch, right? Yeah. And are the two sort of pure comedy things he did that are still kind of watched and appreciated. And he's so unbelievably charming in both of them. I prefer A Knight's Tale as a film. Yes, no, A, t- a Knight's Tale is incomparable. It's honestly just the best. 
but that is such a like crazy announcement of a movie star yeah right like my brain can't fully absorb the fact that he was only 28 when he died i know it's just so young and i realize that's just like a really dumb and obvious thing to say but i don't pay a great deal of attention to celebrity deaths so when i saw that he died at 28 like i'd actually forgotten i was like oh he must have been in his mid-30s no (laughs) fucking god (laughs) no 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 he would have been 40 last week I was I watched this movie on what would have been his 40th birthday, I realized. But there's something now about watching any of his movies, including this one, this is my experience, that like no matter how fun or charming they're supposed to be, like I can't fully engage with that because I just get very sad. And like he's so good that you get swept up in that somewhat. Like I had a very good time watching this movie it's not like i didn't find it fun but um it's just like you can't fully get it out of your head or at least i can't Mm -hmm. that like he is dead and died so young and that was for me like by far the most traumatic celebrity death and obviously like it's a stranger you know it's not like i knew him personally but um I was completely obsessed with Brokeback Mountain, as were all of my friends as teenagers, because that's a normal thing to be obsessed with as a teenager. Um, but we were all very into it. And I had a crush on Jake Gyllenhaal, because I think he's more of a like, teenage girl accessible figure. And whereas at that time, he's got a little bit more of a boy bandy face. But I loved Heath Ledger, too. And like I vividly remember like the moment where I found out that he had died. And I like sprinted downstairs to find my mom and told her and literally was like sobbing hysterically to the point where like she couldn't understand what I was saying. And I'm sure thought that like something had happened. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Because like at that point, like I think, I mean, obviously I've loved A Knight's Tale since I saw it as a kid and watched it many times. And I'd seen him in Brokeback Mountain and The Dark Knight, but I don't think... I don't you think would not he was see him in the Dark Knight because oh, it had not come out. Oh, okay. Yet. Well, I mean, I was aware he was in the Dark Knight, then, but so, so I was like, I mean, he was on my radar and I knew him and stuff, but like, I didn't have that kind of personal connection. I think it's like only sort of retroactively, I'm like, holy shit. Yeah, I mean, it's just so horrible. <laughs> like, I mean, he was younger than us now, and in that basically like nine year span, did this movie A Knight's Tale. Brokeback Mountain, The Dark Knight, and then a sort of variety of like little indie movies that were, I mean, he gives some amazing performances in some of those little films. Mm -hmm. And you just think like if he hadn't died, it's just, it's really, really depressing. Well, there was, there was a quote from possibly the director or one of the co-stars in one of the oral histories I'm going to link to. And he was just saying like, of all of Heath's roles, this person was like, I think that 10 Things was the closest to him as a person because it was kind of all about his sort of charm and energy. And then they were saying the later on he got into his career, the more he wanted to take roles that were obscuring his personality so he could kind of vanish into the role. And obviously he became like a really intensive method actor in his later years. But yeah, this was kind of the one that was pure Heath energy. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, obviously, again, like I did not know him and like who knows but it's certainly like everyone loved him <laughs> like, and it sounds like he actually was like a non-terrible person um which just makes it all more depressing 
And so in a way, like the fact that like this in a knight's tale exists is really wonderful because you get those pure joyous comic performances, right? But well, I don't know, like I can't watch them without also just being like sad, which is a weird kind of double think thing. And what are you gonna do? It is what it is. But he's he's just one of my favorite actors, and it's the bummer that he died. Uh, but he's he's just great in this. And um, and the other component of the double think is that he's just so hot. <laughs> so you're like, oh, this is very weird. Like, I don't really know how to feel about myself thinking this, but like, that's the conundrum of the movie actor, even once they've died. So, well, there was a quote from the director where he was like, "I've never been attracted to a man in my life, but if I was going to have sex with one, it would be Heath Ledger." And it was like, <laughs> "Okay, well, first of all, he was very young, and also you're his boss, but okay." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but who can deny the the Paul? Um, yeah, it's too funny. Well. That's the down note that I have to end on. Do you have any more uplifting thoughts about this film before we conclude? I mean, I found it very funny and delightful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. I definitely would recommend it. Yeah, and then watch Easy E. That's what you do next. All right. So thank you for listening to this week's episode. Uh, Next week, we will be doing a patreon sponsored episode we will be discussing uh another classic from not the 90s but shortly after the 90s uh a favorite of my childhood the road to el dorado this is really good timing because morgan and i watched this together last time we went on holiday together and this episode will be coming out when we are on holiday together again so yes yeah perfect yeah i fucking love this movie as a child watched it many many times it's tremendous. So uh, that will be really fun to talk about. If you would like to subscribe to our Patreon and uh, perhaps pay us money to watch something that you would like us to watch, you can find us at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We have uh, lots of blog posts and some minisodes and uh, commentary tracks for some of the episodes we've talked about, including most recently Captain America, The Winter Soldier. That episode went up last week and is my personal favorite episode of the podcast ever, predictably. So um, take a listen to that if we, you haven't we yet. We really are so invested. Absolute experts. Passionately. A lot of personal history in there as well with yes. this beautiful movie. Yeah, it's a good one. So you can find that there. If you don't want to subscribe to that, or even if you do, we would also really appreciate a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast service you use. It really helps new listeners find us. And otherwise, uh, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work on the internet? Yeah, you can find my writing on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. You can find the podcast on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. We are also on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.